right. I am here with Aiden Jonah, editor of the Canada Files, uh, a socialist news organization that seeks to cover Canadian imperialism, Canadian left-wing activism, and key world issues. We focus, they focus primarily on the impact of Canada's foreign policy on the world and its effect on us, all the while covering Indigenous nations. So Aiden, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be on the show. So, um, you know, I want to talk about like the origin story of the Canada Files and stuff, but I, but first let's um let's do it by by demonstration. Let's talk a little bit about one of your investigations from last month. Uh, I'm looking at the article now, exclusive: how the NED, Open Society Foundations, and NATO collectively fund institutions driving development of Canadian political thought. So this is a you know this is a doozy of a title. Um, in the sense that it has a number of uh, the <laughs> what masters of the universe <laughs> in the first in the first th- uh, clause of the uh, of the of the title. So the NED. Let's talk about that first, because the NED is this National Endowment for Democracy. It's a it's a U.S. Um, it's a U.S. based uh, institution, and their kind of story is that they go around the world. Um, giving help, workshops, training, uh, education on how technically to operate in a democratic system. So they teach political parties how to organize and how to campaign and how to make posters. And and they talk about how to organize your party and how to run a meeting. So it's all very benign, right? Um, Stuff. But at the same time, um, they're they're intervening in countries uh, where there's a heavy imperial footprint. So you'll see them in Haiti, you know, all, all over Latin America, uh, where they're allowed to operate. Um, and they they basically are pushing um, these parties that they're training to uh, adopt more pro-U.S. policies. Uh, you know, low taxes, privatization, control over. Um, U.S. control over their commanding heights of their industries, a deregulation, um, and and a lot of anti-communism and a lot of anti-socialism. So uh, that's what 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 do you what did you uncover about the NED? You know, and we'll go through each one. But like, what what's your what's your what did you discover about the NED and how it works? Sure thing. So uh, I think, of course, with the NED is important context, of course, that they were founded, I believe it was in 1983, of course, under the Reagan administration. So mm-hmm. always, always a good sign there. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's straight up, it's a CIA cutout. Uh, it was yeah. one of their founding members who acknowledged this in a 1991 interview. They just straight up said that it was the role of the NED to do things that the CIA was doing in private, just in public right. with a more legitimate face. Yeah, let me jump in again here because it's um you know if you read this book, uh, Killing Hope by William Bloom, where he talks about you know just a hundred or so in U.S. interventions, but mostly by the CIA. Um, in terms of what the NED is saying, is like we're doing overtly what the CIA used to do covertly, and over covertly the CIA used to cultivate journalists, cultivate um, friendly politicians give them money under the board, you know, under the table, uh, have them write, you know, and, you know, 
articles against the president if the president was left-leaning uh, in Chile or what have you um, under Allende in 1973. They would have these uh, covert operations to kind of shape public opinion in other countries. And that's, um, that's also what you're say- suggesting uh, they're doing even in Canada, where you would think there's plenty of pro-U.S., um, pro-privatization sentiment, but they don't, um, they don't like to rest on their laurels. They try to make sure that that environment stays, um, stays friendly. So what, are, what is the NED doing in Canada? Sure thing. So the first thing I'll have to bring up, uh, of course, in some of the context is that uh, back in on February, uh, right before the, I'm sure you're aware of the Xinjiang genocide vote, uh, and you're well aware of the Camp Al stances, stances on it, uh, which is that we're against that narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were looking into that committee vote, myself particularly, and I noticed that this group called the Uyghur Rights Action Advocacy Project, right? Right. Uh, this group openly admits to taking funding from the National Endowment for Democracy. Right. And so its executive director, uh, Mehmet Toti, actually was one of the most crucial witnesses mm-hmm. in this uh, in this parliamentary vote. Right. And then I kid you not, there's this parliamentary Uyghur friendship group that got founded. So I'll give you a little timeline, right? It's around uh, late 2018 that this uh, committee gets started. And then it's around uh, late 2020, uh, October-ish, that the report... Uh, eventually ends up coming out, right? And so what happens is that during February 2020, this uh, Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project, from what I can tell, it actually was one of the driving figures in launching this parliamentary Uyghur friendship group because it's the only place I can find information and announcements about it. Okay. And so this, uh, it had essentially they managed to get Five out of the eight uh, parliamentarians, including uh, an NDP member of parliament, Heather McPherson, uh, all to go and join that uh, parliamentary Uyghur friendship uh, group. And then when he testifies, Toti testifies, nobody lists that as a conflict of interest or even acknowledges the fact that they're pretty much openly already jumping uh, to a whole side, right? And so it's just a whole it's a whole wild thing. I mean, you you had Max Blumenthal and uh, uh, the other people at the Gray Zone not being offered to testify. You had the World Uyghur Congress, all these NED backed groups going to testify, and then you have one in Canada going and, and basically driving this this vote on, which has just really deteriorated further our relationship, uh, our Canadian relations with the largest economy in the world, uh, which is China uh, on just on these farcical grounds, right? I just mentioned this, right? Yeah. Because yeah. this, just to give you an idea, this was the only reason why I found this, right? Mm-hmm. Was because this organization was foolish enough to just put it all openly on their page. Yeah, There's, well, they're not, I mean, like you said, right? Like NED works um, better because it's open. So they, they don't well, see the anything shameful in... Uh, the NED, actually, the NED actually didn't didn't declare this. It was only the group. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. it was only the group. That's well, why but I it's that. legitimacy for them. So yeah. for them, it's like, you know, hey, we're we're not just, uh, you know, we're not just some little startup. We're actually, uh, you know, we're actually in 
we actually have an in with the U.S. here. We're, yeah. we're getting. Oh yeah, guys, we made it big time. <laughs> big time. So the the Uyghur rights, the Uyghur rights advocacy project, correct, um, is you know. So they start up. I mean, the t- the timing is interesting too, in the sense that you know you're you're. I know you um you mentioned on Daniel Dumbrill's uh, uh channel uh, that you were an activist, you know, before you were a journalist and. Um, you know, if you imagine an activist group, imagine like Palestine at activist uh, activists trying to get a parliamentary, um, <laughs> you know, declaration <laughs> against Israeli apartheid or something. Starting maybe they'll start sometime in 1948, and they'll they'll organize a grassroots movement, and you know, seven decades later, they'll you know a- achieve a meeting with some liberal minister who tells them, you know, look, you know, these things take time, right? These, you know, or 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 he'll or he'll have a NDP. Everyone will go around and cheering on NDP votes for tiny little policy changes yeah, that yeah. will then just get totally ignored and yeah. everyone will be like oh wow how did this ever happen this only ever happened 10 times before but in 2018 2018 they um organized this group they put it together they get a bit of funding from NED and within what a year and a half they're uh they get a unanimous declaration in the Canadian parliament about grassroots advocacy baby so, uh, so what you know what are we doing wrong right um, I don't okay. know, man. I don't know. <laughs> so we have the NED. Now we have, let's do let's do the Open Society. So the Open Society, this is George Soros. And George Soros is a funny one because George Soros is like a demon of the fascist uh, rights, right? They hate George Soros. But like when you look at what George Soros does, it's actually for the most part over trying to overthrow left-wing governments. So he's not exactly the, uh, the natural enemy of... Uh, of the right at all, it, but but George Soros is this finance, um, you know, in, investment is like a speculator who bet it, back in the nineteen late nineteen nineties. I, I gather he bet against he made a big speculative bet against Asian um, currencies. So he was involved in kind of destabilizing the East Asian uh, so called tigers of the nineteen nineties um, through this currency crisis crash market yeah crash i actually wrote about that yeah. for plan a magazine earlier oh, in the year cool yeah so that's how he makes his fortune but then he decides to 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 go on this open so there's open so the in according to the open society according to this ideology the world is is divided it's not divided in terms of you know whether a country supports u.s imperialism or not but it's it's divided in terms of open and closed so there's some definition of open and closed that they go on and they take closed societies and try to open them so the closed societies happen to all be uh communists um many from east europe but but the big target is china um right now uh yeah for for sure i would say the one important thing is it's uh source also kind of started to have some of the wealth through he ran essentially this quantum fund yeah. And so that was that was basically what do you what the resources he had from that was how he started these things off. Open society seemed to kind of come around more in the late uh, 80s and early 90s as things okay. started to become more and more successful for him. So. Okay, okay. So he's been into philanthropies since before he became he made his big big bucks, I guess. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, the one example, it's, it's a fun, it's a funny one, I can always cheer it on is uh, with the he tried to I think it was bet against the, uh, the, the, the currency of the Hong Kong special administrative region. 
basically in the 90s. And that failed because uh, essentially the the government of China basically just took from its currency reserves and made sure that uh, that part of its country would not uh, go uh, look totally, uh, totally bankrupt. And so uh, (laughs) ever since Soros has hated China so much. And I mean, good on them. I mean, anytime, anytime you control George Soros, uh, I can I can cheer that on. (laughs) <laughs> okay so what now so the next question just to follow the same scheme what is open what is the open society doing in canada you would think there's no what's more open than canada i mean free markets um whatever so what's the open society doing here right so it's, it's this whole really strange thing right and so for thing i have to i have to explain one thing there's this group called uh plan africa canada right that was well it's okay. not plan africa canada now but it, it was founded in, uh, it was 1986, actually. Mm-hmm. And it was established essentially as a Canadian civil society coalition, which distributed funding from CEDA, which is the Canadian International right. Development Agency, right. uh, in, towards funds in, in Africa, right? And so it stopped distributing the funds in the mid-90s. But right. eventually, uh, it was around uh, 20, it was 2015 or 20, yeah, 2016. Uh, that they ended up uh, turning themselves into impact. And so it was around uh, starting off from 2017 that behind the scenes, and this is where the Open Society Foundations comes in. So how they are funding the groups in Canada is, and this is the major, I think, scandal per se, more than the groups that they're uh, actually giving the money to, is they founded, funded these groups through uh, a pass-through organization. And that pass-through organization was impact which was formerly a right. essentially a pass-through organization for CEDA funding. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, and so that's the really big thing, right? So the three groups um, that... So there's a government, there's a government uh, development aid agency. Right, so it was formally tax... at the start. Right. At the start then, it was, right. And then they give money to this third party, and the third party goes and spends it on African charities or programs or whatever. Right. So I'll, I'll put it this way, right? Plan Africa Canada was, yeah, Plan Africa Canada, when it started, was they got money from CETA and then they went and spent it other places. Then they became, they didn't become that. Then they switched away from that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then basically in 2017, they played a somewhat even similar-ish role uh, with yeah. Open Society Foundations where they get the money from Open Society okay. and Open Society, uh, then they... Uh, impact actually goes and sends that money over uh and the three groups that they got it from two uh were transparency international canada publish what you pay canada and canadians for tax fairness right and so actually the funny thing is that full grant that's administered by impact uh it was valued uh around two hundred thirty-seven thousand dollars canadian so it's not the most but it's also not a small uh amount of cash of cash either right and so the whole the whole biggest problem is just, quite frankly, the fact that this is done quietly behind the scenes. It's done through a pass through organization. Uh, and so I mean, I not, you know, for an organization, one of the organizations involved is called Transparency International. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah no, it doesn't seem all that transparent. Well, the funny thing, the funny thing actually is, it was only it was only that only information only became available because Transparency International Canada revealed it in their 2020 report. They didn't tell, mention about this earlier, but in the 20, at least they, they, well, no, all I know is for sure they did actually reveal it in the 2020 report. 
And so Impact actually they they never they never disclosed the role. Um, when they actually reach when we when the Canfiles reached them for verification, they claim to be an organization that doesn't administer funds on behalf of other NGOs generally or other Canadian NGOs specifically, uh, which I mean, technically, sure, it's not another Canadian NGO, but look, I mean, the fact is that taking money from these kind of organizations uh, like uh, Open Society Foundations and not disclosing this at all is incredibly problematic. Like what is, yeah, and what what's, what's really going on here? Um, yeah. Okay, and then we have NATO. And NATO, you know, um, a little bit different in the sense that this is a military alliance, um, that has uh, dismantled Yugoslavia, for example, um, the former Yugoslavia bombed, um, occupied um, various countries, uh, and uh, can, yeah, just generally has brought us the world ever closer to, you know, world war and nuclear um, catastrophe. So NATO is is a particularly, um, you know, on this list, I'd say NATO is definitely the most destructive, although, you know, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give anything up to the, you know, I wouldn't want to diminish the destructive role of the others, but, but NATO, Canada is a, a treaty partner to NATO. Canada participates in NATO's military operations. Um, but what is this, what is this, um, what is the ideological, what's going on with, with, What's what kind of operations are Nate? Did you report on uh, NATO's doing um, here in Canada? Yeah, for sure. So the really interesting thing with NATO Association of Canada, right? It was originally the Atlantic Council of Canada when it was created oh. in 1966, oh. and uh, basically what happens is that uh, the organization was it was actually originally set up by the Canadian government after they joined NATO, uh, and then it says they transitioned away from the model. I could never find an exact year. Uh, where this was, and funny old story, um, it was 2014, uh, basically documents uh, that came out that were available through Web Archive uh, in, yeah. from 2014 was the first time I could find funding details um, from them. And they had reports from like 2010, 2011, but the one thing you're going to find with a lot of these organizations uh, is transparency is not their biggest thing, right. Right. to put it lightly. Because it's, uh, and so, it's like these amounts of money that are moving around. Between, I mean, it's a very neoliberal model, right? Nobody does anything directly. They subcontract and subcontract to a subcontractor. And so nobody's, it's not clear who's responsible for anything. If anything goes bad, it's like, well, we didn't do it. Our sub subcontractor did it. Um, and it, it, it gets down all the way to the level of like writing a report or writing a sentence in a report or something. You know, oh yeah, no, no, for for sure, it's it's really uh, manipulative in the way that they that they end up doing this. And so, right, the of course you mentioned they're part of the Atlantic Treaty Alliance, and I'm sure uh, because of the Gray Zone and other people have uh, Min Press, a lot of people have covered the actions of the Atlantic Council in the USA, mm -hmm. uh, and their funding is even more blatant. But obviously, we're not here to discuss that. But NATO Association Canada, it really is, it's just straight up a NATO propaganda institution. And it's just trying to purportedly educate Canadians about NATO, which is insulting, quite frankly. <laughs> like, what do we, what is it that we, <laughs> what kind of education do we need about NATO? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not the education they want. Um, 
and honestly, the the, the what I really hit and frustrated me, obviously because I'm part of a, a younger generation, is there. I one of the things I constantly saw in like digging into their web archive, uh, and web, web archive is such a great tool uh, to dig into these organizations because they hide their stuff uh, unless you can find tools like that. And so they're really over the decades they've been working to propagate propagandize Canadian youth into really believing that NATO militarism and political interference within sovereign nations is somehow a broader campaign for peace and justice. So what do they do? Do they do, they do workshops or what? Is, like, how does this actually take place? Do they, do they give money to academics or what's, what, what is, where does the money go? Right. So it, it's, it's rather, it's a rather uh, interesting front in the sense that they actually, they bring on a lot of youth into kind of uh, these writing writing positions oh, so and like internships. A, okay. so it's like a think um, it's a real think tank. It's a it's a it is it is essentially like a think tank of sorts. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah, and they have a lot. They have a lot of like it's it's in the it's in the dozens of people they bring on each year. So it's not like they just bring in like three or four people. So they do have it's it's interesting because. Uh, the, the the again the whole transparency thing. Their funding is so incredibly hard to find in the present day. Uh, it's and we'll get to that later. But you wonder how they have the money to do what they do uh, with uh, at least what they publicly disclose. Right. Um, and then uh, what they pub they they've got a who's who of corporate. Um, what would you call it? Like corporate malfeasance not malfeasance but backers like... <laughs> yeah but i'm saying like it's resource companies <laughs> banks and military uh hardware right so you you're I'm just looking at these lists you've got uh general dynamics canada you've got snc lavalin which had a famously um you know the anti-war movement in 2003 in canada had a big um a series of like marches and demonstrations against snc lavalin because they were they had a contract to provide bullets for the U.S. military, uh, you know, which they were going to be using in Iraq. So there's this big bullet contract that, you know, we're trying to get canceled. But in any case, um, you know, we've, we have Boeing. So we have a lot of uh, weapons companies. And then we have um, we have the usual uh, Enbridge gas and we have the natural resources mining. And then we have the banks that are basically funding these yeah, and I mean, the the really interesting thing is, uh, and maybe we'll jump to some of the older ones because some of the supporting institutions, even if, if they say they're not directly funding them directly, it's really really interesting to look at them. Is uh, you got NATO, uh, Latvian Ministry of Defense, mm-hmm. uh, and this is in terms of their sponsors and partners page. Which again, the lack of transparency point. Uh, they don't say if they're a partner or a sponsor, and they obviously don't say how much either. So yet again, these people that harp on about transparency and all this crap, they're, they're exactly, it's just pure projection. So you got NATO, Latvian Ministry of Defense, which also provides funding to the McDonald Laurier Institute, which I wrote about last year. Uh, and funny, funny old story, um, the communications director at the MLI, Brett Byers, had a, uh, had a little meltdown on, on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. He went after a good friend of the Canfels, Dan Bleckner. Uh, for uh, for posting about about the MLI, and then uh, got really <laughs> mad when I when I shared my article, uh, quote yeah, tweeted well, it, and had a whole had a whole little Twitter thing with him, and he just kept on running away from my questions. It was it was really well, they're very um 
they they're very proud of what they're doing so they don't really even get you know why anyone would have a critique i find that kind of worldview that they have is like they're they're running everything by right you know they're the wonderful they're the you know they're the best and the brightest i'm just looking at the nato association of canada's um facebook page right now uh, and it's it's interesting because it's 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 really a, it's like it's like LinkedIn. It's like everybody's LinkedIn page. It's it's like everybody's bio and and how all how how qualified they are. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Thomas Frank's book. Um, you know, books about like listen liberal. Anyway, um, yeah, so, I'd, I'd say the best way to summarize that is qualified to lie. So well, yeah, I mean it, it's yeah, and and it's a lot of critique of other countries i mean here's here's a naoc senior editor uh, argues that western statesmen should respond to this calamitous event meaning the afghanistan you know the fall of the fall of afghanistan okay um by reaffirming their civilizational self-confidence and broadly <laughs> mapping out their vision for a form of global governance that protects the interests of their nation dude so the, the person's like the most uptight person you can ever get what the hell yeah what are they, some sort of aristocracy? Yeah, exactly. That's what it sounds like, right? Is they're affirming their civilizational values. Um, okay, so uh, I guess that was... So in a sense, a lot of what they're driving, like it's, you know, when you think of the way NED or open society behaves in, in Latin America, you know, what they're doing is they're, they're actually driving um, that country's political class uh, to make decisions that are pro-U.S., but when they intervene in a country like Canada, it seems like the idea is just to make you know keep everything smooth and and keep Canada uh, Canadian foreign policy oriented towards what the U.S. is doing. So it's it's a it's more of a foreign policy. They're trying to influence Canadian foreign policy more than canadian domestic policy in that sense yeah i mean that's that's the sense i got for for sure and i mean with the nad to, to be emphasized is i don't think the campbell's has covered uncovered the full extent yeah. realistically because we've only started looking into this a few months ago and look what we found already yeah. but i mean certainly i think my main my main worry and part of the reason why i, I want to dig into this a lot is look i think basically the example of honduras is a really interesting one yeah uh, you have Man- Manuel Zelaya, who's very much a liberal, basically, mm-hmm. who governed uh, around like 2006. And it was interesting. He actually went under incredible pressure from social groups and social movements. And they actually did push him to the left to a certain degree on, on certain economic policy. And guess what he got in exchange for that? A violent bloody coup yeah. and being forced out of office. And what I mentioned for that is, that, yes, we have a liberal leader. But one of the things that's cautious, right, is if we actually win... Uh, real, real tangible achievements in Canada. Keep yeah. your eye out for yeah. these kind of organizations where these funding, where this funding is going. I view like the funding of the NED, Open Society, like these kind of uh, foreign foreign governments and really uh, the foreign institutions. I mean, especially the NED as kind of a rot in Canada, really, and that rot has to be dealt with, or else it's going to come up and it's going to come up strongly because there's definitely. There's definitely touch points in Canadian society where you look at well, yeah, you, look you, at, you you don't have to be a communist to be overthrown by the U.S. No, by no means, no means. As long as you, if you have even some sort of support of a multipolar world, yeah. you're going to get overthrown. That'll be enough. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so let's move on to the International Crisis Group, um, which is another uh, interesting, it's a think tank. Um, and the board includes a lot of former presidents from basically friendly countries. Like I, I've, I looked into the ICG a long time ago, but it was like Ernesto Cedillo, or it would be like people like the former Mexican president or um, president of Spain and other European um, countries. So, what is what is your what is your um, investigations around the international crisis group reveal sure thing i'll mention another funny thing which is um it's actually the seed funding for the icg actually came from guess who open society foundations oh there you go and they're and they're the largest funder to this day just a just a whole funny fact uh and so the reason why the icg comes to mind is obviously with the it all began of course with the rest of meng wanzhou uh on december 1st of 2018 you then have the two michaels arrested and at first they're just being portrayed as some innocent perfect lovely victims but in fact if you look into them and dig into the publicly available information uh they're actually very questionable people at best so it's really it's really interesting in the sense that uh you have Koverg kind of being the main kind of person and spavor kind of doing secondhand kind of work and sending him uh sending him information and basically what they were charged with is espionage and realistically when you look at the facts i mean it really doesn't look that unrealistic for for that well there was a question about well it's interesting because there are you know sanctions like the u.s has i mean the whole Meng wanjo case uh is around is is the act is based on the accusation uh that Meng Wanzhou's, uh, you know, personally being held, uh, held literally, like uh, in under house arrest, um, detained for the company Huawei, uh, apparently doing business in Iran that the U.S. doesn't like, um, and of course this that case itself, even on its most limited terms, has fallen apart legally. The judge is likely going to rule for extradition anyway but we'll see uh what happens there but but um the idea um of sank like sanctions is is the key policy of the foreign policy of the u.s and canada mostly joins all of these although canada doesn't have sanctions on iran but there's a sanctions regime against north korea and people who do business with North Korea get into a, an, a significant amount of trouble. So this is where your, you know, this is one of the questions that you um, raise in your article. Um, Michael Kovrig and Spavor are spies despite obfuscation of Canadian Canada's mainstream media, September 6th, Canada files. So can you talk about that question in particular? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, uh, I will quickly mention with the case of Meng, of course, that the sanctions on Iran are illegal under international law. And there's also the interesting fact that the judge in Canada actually rejected uh, the defense for Meng for actually bringing in evidence that showed that she wasn't even guilty of the charges because the people in the bank were actually aware of these actions. So there wasn't even fraud per se. Yeah. So the she rejected are... that, but she actually said just before uh, adjourning 
she actually told them, she said, this is, isn't this kind of a weird case? She asked the, the American judges, she said, isn't this kind of a weird case? Because um, we have uh, a, a fraud case where there was no harm done to the person allegedly defrauded and the allegedly defrauded uh, party actually knew the information that was supposedly being withheld from them. <laughs> and the, the lawyers were like, yeah, I, I can see why you'd think that, but meh. <laughs> we, we're the US, we don't have to make, make a coherent case here. Yeah, but it's interesting. On the Spavar is an interesting one because you mentioned North Korea. So he, he was involved with North Korean tourism for for a couple for a couple of years really. It's called he ran this thing called uh, Paikatu, if I hope I'm pronouncing that right, exchanges, which is an NGO promoting trade and tourism in North Korea. So he was able to make contact with the North Korean government. He had links with the Chinese and South Korean governments and a connection with one celebrity there, right? So it's interesting, of course, that his headquarters were definitely not suspicious. They were set up uh, on the China-North Korea border. And funny, funny old thing, he was actually never charged for violating sanctions by the Korean government. And so that should already give you an idea that if, if you're not sanctioned for doing business with North Korea, that tends to mean you're doing something useful mm-hmm. uh, for, for the Korean state, right? This is the... Uh, this is the, the really interesting thing, essentially, right? Is that essentially with uh, his work with Pikachu Exchanges, he took a lot of photos that were posted on the Instagram pages. And essentially, uh, they t- he took pictures of uh, like military uniforms, railroads, and uh, key, like key military equipment, right? Right. And it's like, okay, you know, it all seems kind of, okay, big deal. You're photographing railroads and so on, but nobody, ha- nobody can get those pictures, right? Cause nobody goes to North Korea. So like those, yeah. those are actually a, a kind of a big deal. And also um, another little bit of history, uh, the G20, when they met in, um, in Toronto, there was, there was a guy who was arrested um, for taking pictures of, you know, just like pictures of the fence and stuff that they'd set up to, protect the g20 in 2010 from demonstrators so that's in toronto so in toronto they'll arrest you for taking pictures of things like railways and fences and infrastructure but um north korea <laughs> yeah yeah no and so it's interesting of course because the photos Spavor took right so they were sent uh, outside of china illegally and so one of the people taking those photos uh was actually covert right and so Essentially, the deal with Kovrig is that he, uh, interestingly enough, he worked with the uh, Canadian uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, in Hong Kong and Beijing from 2012 to 2016. Mm-hmm. And the really interesting thing is that uh, he had actually met, he, uh, there was an interesting, uh, I think it was a CBC article or Bloomberg video where they talked about how um, essentially he had met a lot with, uh, with Xinjiang dissidents. And guess what the Xinjiang dissidents tend to be? East Turkestan Islamic Movement or the Turkestan Islamic Party? Uh, so, so already... And this would be... So he was working out of the Canadian embassy? Or yeah, the Canadian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So yeah, it would, it would be uh, essentially the embassy of sort. Yeah. So that would so be like the first time an, uh, a spy had operated out of an embassy in, in all of human history, right? That oh, yeah. Happened. Never, never, never happened before. No, no, never. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But the uh, right. And so that's the interesting thing. Right? I just mentioned it because he started to work. Cover started to work for the International Crisis Group as the Northeast Asia advisor for the organization in 2017. And so 
uh essentially what happened soros is soros is on the board of of the international crisis group so is lawrence summers who wait uh, i oh my goodness interesting okay yeah i'm just (laughs) looking at the board now who we are board of governors uh so lawrence summers who famously wrote a memo saying that africa is under polluted um (laughs) economic from point of view of economic rationality because they don't get paid as much so their lives are worth less so they should actually be accepting more pollution Um, he after that he became president of harvard i think um, he was How lovely. He was a World Bank economist at that time. Uh, Santos, former president of Colombia. Um, let's see who other. What are other some some other big names? Um, we have Sippy Livni, former uh, vice prime minister of Israel. You can remember her defending some of the major massacres that Israel committed. I think in 08, 09. Um, yeah, so it's it's the it is the the establishment. It's really the the global <laughs> establishment that's you know on the side of like all the U.S. allies, basically. Oh no, for sure, right? And the thing is with with uh, with Covert, of course, he worked working for the International Crisis Group. So essentially, Covert uh, entered China under the guise of a businessman and mm-hmm. false pretext of uh, of commerce, right? And so what Coburg did uh, in there was he gathered information related to China's national security, and he wrote uh, reports that were going to be sent to the International Crisis Group. And here's the thing, and this is the thing nobody talks about. The International Crisis Group is not authorized to work in China as a legitimate NGO. So he, look, he never should have been there in the first place. He was not legally allowed to be there working for the International Crisis Group. So, I mean, that alone would have been enough to get him in trouble if he was doing it, uh, even if he wasn't doing anything as bad as he was. But part of the interesting thing with the the reports, right, is that um, the whole thing with uh, the International Crisis Group, they actually targeted North Korea in 2003. And part of the reason why we t- uh, talked about the China-North Korea border and uh, China and North Korea a few times is because essentially uh, Kovrig, it's really interesting, he views... Uh, China, China's cooperation with Western imperialist aims as a key to actually facilitating regime change in North Korea. And because the ICG has been working on that since 2003. And so if China uh, actually in Japan had have cooperated, they would have tr- uh, tried to get the international community to do a full scale invasion of North Korea. So just to give you an idea, of course, of what the international crisis group uh, would want, in fact, but at its core, right, the the work of the ICG and the work of, of Kovrig in terms of analytical information and reports sending out is really this just the goal of undermining the North Korean government, block trying to block cooperation between the two countries. And of course, when you think about it and when you tie it in together, of course, when you look at Spavor, because his tourism work, his ties with Kovrig, his time with as head of PEC2 exchanges, posting all these sensitive photos, um, as we discussed before, including a Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure on social media. Look, I mean, China reasonably sees Kovrig uh, and Spavor uh, as threats because Kovrig is directly linked to the ICG, and Spavor is taking these photos and sending it illegally to a group that's trying to do regime change in North Korea and collapse relations between the two countries. It's very interesting because it's all like all of the politics of this seems to boil down to uh, China not cooperating in the isolation of other countries. So like they're not letting the U.S. strangle North Korea. They're not letting the U.S. strangle Iran. And for that, 
is why they have to be punished. And it's like on the one side, you have these Canadian operators trying to work towards that goal of breaking the, you know, breaking the Chinese off of, of support for Korea. And then on the other side, you have Canada involved in pu- trying to punish an executive because again, China is not, um, China's not complying in, in allowing the U S to strangle Iran. Oh yeah, for sure. And the, oh, the point I always make is that there is more than 30 countries that rejected arresting Hmong. Yeah, yeah. 30 kind of more than 30 countries. And we were the ones, uh, that were cowed enough to, yeah. to do it. So yeah. that's a great point. Um, all right. So, uh, now that we have a, a substantive sense of what you do, Let's talk about um, where you think the Canada Files fits into the media landscape. Because, you know, when I think about the Canadian media landscape, it's small, you know, compared to the U.S. Every, everybody in Canada knows about the U.S. and follows U.S. media, too. But there's, you know, three or four companies, right? There's Bell Globe, there's Torstar, there's CBC, and there's Sun, which is ultra, ultra right. Um the Asper system, I guess, is another one, the National Post and so on. So there's four or five of them uh, at that level. And they're integrated. You know, they have TV networks and, and newspapers and all the rest. And then there's um, and then there's a, a relatively small alternative media space, which, you know, is, I'd say, like, even the ones that I like are relatively soft on imperial imperialism. So, oh, relatively soft is a kind way of putting it. <laughs> well, I'm trying to I'm trying to be kind here. <laughs> oh yeah, no worries. You don't you don't need to be too kind. Of, you, you you don't need to be too hard on them. I uh, you know me. <laughs> so <laughs> so um so where is the so you, what you're doing at at Canada Files? There's two things that I see. Uh, one is the the point of view in the sense of you know working on imperialism specifically and like foreign policy questions. And then um, the other is that you emphasize the investigative uh, side of things. So yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that because you, you do have a lot of opinion pieces on Canada files, but like, it seems like where you're headed and what you're trying to work on now is, is the investigative journalism. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's certainly the way I put it is there's certainly space for uh, for opinion pieces and and, anal- and news analysis pieces. Uh, definitely, uh, certainly. I think you're trying to transition over more and more time towards a purely investigative reporting style one. But here's the interesting thing: is I look at the state of independent media, and I just simply think there isn't like space for really much truly anti-imperialist analysis pieces and opinion pieces. So as long as there isn't that space the Canada Files will kind of play that alternative function as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if it's, look, a lot of times if it doesn't go to the Canada Files, it's going to go somewhere abroad or other places that just simply have less reach in Canada. So it's interesting. I'll get back to your, uh, on the question on media more generally, is of course the mainstream media in this country is a, is a complete train wreck, really. I mean, <laughs> you look at the case of, of course, Freeland's uh, Nazi granddaddy. Uh, basically, they just ran around compla- complaining it was Russian disinformation, um, just running around denying reality, or as Prenti would say, inventing reality. And so it's so interesting. Michael of Parenti is a big um, inspiration for you. Uh, I think so. I think he was really important. I think he was a really important figure for me. Certainly, uh, I, I kind of started to read him part like relatively early, uh, like a couple couple months 
towards uh, like nine or 10 months in, I started to really read. And it was interesting that it kind of shaped and really firmed my stances on where I was going for things. I think for me, the independent media space, it's funny because they got so little limited uh, audience penetration, right? I had no clue these people existed before I started the Canfels. What's Wait, who, the most... you mean You mean like the the Canadian alternative media? I, I barely large? knew about it, honestly. Yeah. I, I really did. I, I knew of Rabble. So like, a, a you know, well, bit, the, but... there's a there's a huge success story, which is the Canada Land podcast, right? Well, they've gone mainstream. Yeah, because they've had this incredible success. And this is what happens, right? It's like, a, you know, they started uh, as a startup. I don't know it that well. But for me, having watched it, it's like having watched it grow. It was like there was a podcast early and they were there was there was a lot of craving for at least something else than the media monopolies and so Canada land grew explosively and it's you know it's it's almost like a a mainstream institution now um the the, the core thing is looking at the other independent media is that to be honest as I've gone along and I've done the reporting and I've done these things it's to me like I look at like a lot of these outlets uh really as look soft tools of imperialism in the sense that they are tremendously good at uh, opposing certain, uh, how do I put it this way, lesser important imperial causes, but the core imperial causes, they will subtly back or write and do content in a way that enables left third campism, which is just as useful for the political powers in the West as, of course, uh, simple support for it uh, really so, is. So it's it's a little bit like the it's it's somehow yeah i mean when when i look at like the uk media the guardian right or um yeah the guardian kind of plays this role where it kind of absorbs a lot of the left-wing energy um and and makes sure that you know that you you devote most half your time at least to hating china and syria or libya or whoever the enemy of the moment is while you're also, you know, having some critique of some critique of of some of the policies of the the UK government, and it's like the Canadian mainstream media is so bad that it's actually the alternative media that plays some of that Guardian, you know, type role. It was Arnold August, who yet again another good friend of the Campbells, really invaluable figure. Uh, so he was really pointing out to me that they've actively been pushing a line against Cuba, actually. Uh, so they've been they've been going against Cuba pretty openly. I'm sure you're aware of the split within the Canadian dimension where Dimitri Lascaris, Alice, Alan Freeman, and Radhika Desai left the board. Yeah. I think is pretty obvious why that was. Uh, the politics really just look. I mean, they veered to the veered to the right, uh, and they've gone to a really bad path. And it's, well, it's quite it, fast. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this actually goes to a discussion about like the the state of the left in Canada, right? Because it's like a lot of um, a lot of left organizations, uh, and I guess me- their related media are they really they really hate China and they really hate Cuba, and they call anyone who uh, doesn't share that feeling they call them tankies uh, and and whatnot so there's a or they call them i think the fancier word is campist i've heard them call oh campist uh, or what yeah. some briar patch article 
uh, targeting uh, an article in the Canfiles, but mainly the Hamilton Coalition was whining about Marxists and all all this nonsense. It's just, oh, yeah. it, it's it's just anti-communists using terms to have little meltdowns about the fact that everyone doesn't, not everyone thinks they're the furthest left in the world. Uh, that's that's like the state of uh, su- supposed alternative media in Canada. It's, it's an incredibly sad state of affairs. Like I look at where I look at the work of the Canfiles, is straight up there needs to be an entire rebuild a uh, building of an entirely new anti-imperialist media ecosystem that look takes the anti-imperialist elements that exist like people like yourself people like arnold august people like canada groups like canada files and so forth and work to kind of develop new talent and new people and just create an entirely new media sphere because i view it as there is such a rot whether it's mainstream media or supposed alternative media that right now is just there's such a dominant an, uh, ideology of anti-communism. And it's not like every single person in, say, a new sphere would have to be a Marxist-Leninist or whatever. No, it's just be, yeah. actually be an anti-imperialist. Be serious about anti-imperialism. We need an entirely new media sphere because it's so broken. And that's part of the can, part of the core vision I see with the, with the Canifiles and the role it can play is hopefully that the Canifiles can really enable that as an institution and look, make growth for people who want to do anti-imperialist content way easier than it's been for the Canfiles. Cause it's been lovely, but man, has it been a slog to get to where I <laughs> am now. So where, okay. So I guess we'll conclude with that. Where, where do you see it going? Where will you uh, take the Canada files? If you're, if you succeed beyond your wildest dreams in this fundraising program that you have now and so on. Sure. So, I'll quickly say on the fundraising, right, is so the goal is ideally it would be 7500 a month uh, because that would let me and Daniel work full time, uh, minimum wage, of course. Uh, but we have two. We have the two closer goals right now, which is uh, at twelve fifty. We're at twelve fifty a month Canadian because we're at seven hundred and ninety a month Canadian currently. We're going to introduce this hashtag upon further investigation initiative, basically where uh, we're going to do follow up one or two follow up threads. Uh, Facebook posts and Instagram posts, essentially uh, either talking about the details that we couldn't hit on mm-hmm. in the article because there wasn't enough space. Like, for example, the Open Society NED investigation, would I had a, I'd have a field day on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially, that's going to be the 1250 goal, right? And so 2500, we're going to start this, uh, this, this uh, interview show, right? Weekly interview show uh, where we're going to cover events related to Canadian foreign policy and it's going to be informed, like I said, of an interview show with a guest. And so those are going to be the two things, right? At twelve fifty and twenty five hundred. And twenty five hundred is the key one because that enables uh, myself and Daniel to at least do this part time, right? Because mm-hmm. it's been a slow ride. I'll gotta be honest, it's been a slow ride. Certainly, I think I had higher expectations than might have been realistic initially, uh, but we're at least somewhat there, right? We're starting to move. And so now that I've mentioned those two things, let me actually jump to your original question. Where do we see the Canfiles and what role does it play? I have ideas for the Canfiles, look, look, 15, 20 years down the line. I see foreign policy coverage as something that genuinely needs to be a daily news operation. And the reason why the Canfiles kind of switched towards investigative was because I think that was my ambition all along. But also, simply put, there's not the staff capacity to do that kind of thing. So if we say hit went beyond our wildest goals and like say we hit like 20,000 a month and we were able to bring on third person or a couple like a staff writer or two right that's the kind of thing where you could start to really critically look at new programs look at how Canada's influencing these uh things abroad 
basically before they happen, right? Because this is the most key thing with uh, where when I come from an activism sphere is I see journalism is inherently attached to movements. I see them as movements and anti-imperialist journalism really need to function and work together if things need to get done because journalism doesn't really change things unless activism does something about the journalism, does something about the facts that the journalism reveals, right? That's where the cycle of the anti-genuine, anti-imperialist media and, of course, the anti-war movements to work together with movements and really change the game in terms of media. Because there's still this somewhat liberal-minded uh, sensibility of uh, a, some separation or really disconnection uh, from political movements. And I think that's part of the reason why things really haven't gotten done, right? Even in the uh, alternative media sphere, there's been a hesitation to connect there so much. And right. even when they do, uh, it's very much, it's just pushing people into the NDP. Like you look at, if you look at the breach, they've done like three or four articles about how great an NDP minority would be. Folks, you're supporting the party that supported the invasion of Afghanistan, supported, yeah. supported the destruction of Yugoslavia, supported the, Korea, the war in Korea, supported the creation of NATO, didn't really do anything actually to tangible to resist the Israeli apartheid state. Aiden Jonah. For sure. Um, just you. one thing, of course, yep. DonorBox. Go to DonorBox.com uh, slash the uh, hyphen Canada hyphen files. That's where you can donate. It would be huge. All right. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you. It's uh, It's been great to come on the show. And if people want to catch me on Twitter, uh, it's Aiden under slash Jonah. And just search up the Canada files on social media. You'll find us there.